You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, fam? It's your boy, Anthony O'Neill, a.k.a. AO. And check this out. You're listening to Earn and Invest with your boy, Dot G, and a special guest, Anthony O'Neill, today. I've told this story before. When I was eight years old, my father died and he had a life insurance policy for $200,000. And this was in the early 1980s. So my mom put that money in the stock market and it compounded over years to such an extent that I didn't have to pay for college or medical school. The money was there. And not only that, but my two brothers also had undergraduate as well as graduate school paid for them. Now, like I said, I've told this story before. What I haven't talked about much is what power that gave me. You see, because when I was in my 20s and 30s, I didn't have any debt. So every extra dollar I made, I could save and invest. And now as a guy in my 40s, when I look at my financial well-being, I realize the beginning of that started with everything I saved into my 20s and 30s. It is the power of compounding, which I never would have been able to do if I was riddled with a huge amount of college and medical school debt. So it really begs an important question. Is college debt holding you or someone you know back? And if so, should you or they have gotten a debt-free degree? Now, I know not everyone listening to this right now is in the midst of trying to figure out how to fund college, but most likely you know someone who is. And speaking of education, in 2020, I think many of us did a lot of self-reflection. For many, it was around personal growth, maybe career choices, personal finances, you name it. One topic that has really surfaced post-2020 is giving back. How can you make a difference in someone else's life, and is it possible to do good for others while actually making money? I'm really glad to share with you that our new partner, Equity & Help Literally Well, helps you do exactly that. Equity & Help grows your capital while helping others and shows how the simple act of investing can make a huge difference to American families. Over 50% of Americans spend more than half of their earnings on rent payments, so what Equity & Help has done is build an investment model to shrink this number. The mission of Equity & Help is to give families the realization of the American dream to own a home of their own when they might otherwise have not been able to. They have already helped almost 400 families families find their home. You can speak to a so-called philanthropic investor at Equity and Help. Just visit equityandhelp.com/podcast. Again, that's equityandhelp.com/podcast. Anthony O'Neill is a national best-selling author who spreads his encouraging message around the country to help teens and young adults transition into the real world. 
And today we're going to talk about his book, Debt-Free Degree. Anthony, welcome to Earn and Invest. Hey, Doc G, man. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Such an honor uh, to be on here to talk with you and and, uh, hopefully bless your listeners, man. So looking forward to the conversation. I'm really excited to have you on. We're talking about the debt-free degree, and I have to be real with you. Like, Tell us a little about your story, because in a sense, you turned out just fine. Are you the biggest (laughs) argument against this idea of a debt-free degree? Oh, man, you know, I think I did turn out okay, man. You know, I went off to college, never had any financial education taught to me in school or in my home. So when I went off to college, man, I'm just thinking I got this. I'm a grown man and I'm 18 years old. And I'll never forget walking onto the college campus the very first day. And I was offered a credit card. So I filled it out, filled out the credit card application. Not really concerned about getting the credit card, Doc. I filled out the credit card application to get the free pizza and the T-shirt that they offered me at that time. When in in hindsight, today, on today's day and time, it's actually illegal for banks to be on the college campus if you're not the actual bank of the college campus. But back in 2002, oh, anybody can come on air and offer so many different things to young people. And so I'll never forget, got the first credit card. And I mean, man, within a matter of about, let's say, 14 hours, I maxed it out. I spent $150 at uh, Red Lobster, taking a young lady out to dinner with all you can eat, crab legs and free biscuits. And then $150 at 1-800-Flowers.com, sending the same young lady some flowers and teddy bears and candies. Then I bought a $200 purse, you know, to give to her uh, because I wanted to impress her. And so within a matter of 14 hours, I'm $500 in debt already. And... I make a small payment. They send me back a letter saying, hey, A.O., thank you so much for making your first payment on time. We see that you're an amazing college student there in California. So we've upped your limit from 500 to a stack to $1,000. And I was like, bet. Thank you so much. So within a matter of not even one hour, Doc, I've already spent it. I've already maxed out the credit limit. Now, I went and put a $500 sound system in the back of my black on black 1987 Nissan Maxima that could not even go into reverse. So I sound good moving forward, but I couldn't go in reverse. So to make a long story short, man, because you're right, I, I experienced some things in college that has shifted my perspective when it comes to finances today at the age of 36. When I was 19, I made some horrible decisions in school. I mean, unfortunately, I had to drop out of school. When I dropped out of school, I lost my job that was attached to the school. I lost the income. I lost some friends. And when I went home, my father told me, hey, you need to live with the consequences of your choices. Since you think you're a grown man, grown men do not come back home. Uh, Grown men live with the consequences of their choices. And because of that, $35,000 in debt and homeless sleeping in the back of my car. Racked up about $15,000 in credit card debt, another $10,000 in furniture bills, and then another $10,000 in student loans when I didn't even need the student loans, Doc, because I had my father's GI Bill and I had a partial scholarship for debating. And I would definitely say this, man, I made a lot of my decisions during my undergrad experience during my younger days to impress people rather than be impactful to my own life. And I think that's something relevant that a lot of people are dealing with today. They're making decisions to be impressive rather than making decisions to be impactful for themselves, for their families and for their future. And so at 19, um, I'm, I'm contemplating suicide because my friends, they loved me when I had the nice stuff. They loved me when I had the apartment with the Playstations and the TVs, but none of them was there for me then when I really needed them. I remember taking showers at the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA's Monday through Friday. And on the weekends, I had to wash myself in the backseat of my car. 
I remember, uh, and, and I don't want to exaggerate here, uh, but I remember holding a sign up two times and just asking people to get something to eat when they drove by the stop sign or when they came by the red light because they didn't have any money. My parents thought I was actually living uh, with a friend at the time, but no, I was sleeping in the back of my car. And so I, I turned my life around, man. I quickly learned that, hey, the caliber of my future will be determined by the choices I made today. I made the wrong choice by racking up all this debt. I can make better choices that will change my future. The first choice I made was to go back and to apologize to my parents as a young man. Say, hey, listen, I'm not a grown man, but I'm, will I'm willing to learn. Pops, will you teach me? And my dad said, I will. So they accepted me back into the house. I got a job. I actually got three jobs. And I wouldn't definitely say I made all the right decisions there financially, man. But I started the journey of paying off my debt and, and really started learning more about stewardship and more about finances and more about loans and getting financial literacy. And so today, man, at the age of 36 years old, I'm 100% debt free. And I get to travel around the world just teaching young people, not just young people, but all people. Hey, here's how you be, become financially free. Here's how you build true wealth. And here's the true definition of success. Here's how you accomplish your dreams and your goals. How uncommon are stories like yours? How big a problem is college debt to people in the United States right now? I mean, it's huge, man. Right now we have 45 million uh, people in America who have student loan debt. And, out of, and the average ballpark um, of those 45 million is about $37,000 in student loans. But then when you really deep dive, I talk about this in my book, uh, Debt Free Degree. When you really deep dive, the average person is going to graduate with $37,000. But then one fifth of those people are going to graduate with a mortgage payment, but do not even have any real estate. You see what I'm saying? They're going to graduate with $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 student loan debt. I actually interviewed a guy that has $950,000 worth of student loan debt because he wanted to become a dentist. And so as you can see right now, that this is a, this is a massive, crucial problem in America. And this is the number two financial crisis in the world. $1.7 trillion in student loan debt right now. And when you really uh, step back and just keep diving in and doing reading and reading and studying and studying, this is num the, one of the number one things that's blocking people from actually building wealth. They can't go out there and, to, and purchase homes because they have $100,000 in student loan debt. They can't, young people are graduating from college and going back home because they don't have the financial means to go out there to get an apartment, to purchase a nice car, uh, to really get into their career field. They need to jump into something to just get income. I recently purchased a car and uh, this young kid graduated from uh, NC State, has a master's, but he's selling cars. Because he says, right now, I can't find my dream job, but I can, I can at least sell cars and make some money. And so right now, student loans, man, are a huge problem. This is why I'm, I'm on this mission today. So, Anthony, you don't make the argument, but I'm wondering why not. Maybe we shouldn't be going to college. I mean, it sounds like a lot of people are coming out of college with such a huge amount of debt. Maybe they would have been smart just to start working right out of high school. You know, you know, Doc, I think college is it, it is a debatable argument. And I think sometimes some people will win that debatable argument saying that college is not worth it. Then I think there will be a lot of times where people will win the argument that college is worth it. Prime example, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, yeah, you need to take your behind it to college. You know, I don't want you going on YouTube trying to defend me in a court of law <laughs> or if I have a surgery, you know, I don't want you saying, yeah, I learned this off of YouTube that, you know, hey. No, no, no. I mean, of course, you know, college in those areas are important. But let's say, for an example, 
you want to, you know, be a, a barber and own your own barber school or own your own barber place or hairstylist. Yeah, you don't need to go to a four-year university for that. Go to hair school, go to barber school, go to a particular trade school. You want to be a welder? Don't go to a four-year university for that. You know, boom, go to welding school. There are so many different options out there to pursue as far as in career path. But I would definitely say this, Doc. While I do believe college is not for everybody, I do believe that education is for everybody. We all should be learning. We all should be improving. We all should be growing. Now, how we get the education, uh, that route may be different. Sometimes it is YouTube. If you want to be a graphic designer, yes, YouTube is a great place to start. I know several people who never went to school for graphic school who are making a half a million dollars a year because they're just real good in that perfection. You know, so there are different things. You know, you just got to step back, identify what you want to do. And if that is to be a school teacher, you need to go to school. Now, here's another thing, Doc. uh, And I'm going all over the place. This is your podcast. Tell me to shut up whenever you want me to shut up. But if you want to be a school teacher, you don't have to go to the number one uh, school in America to be a school teacher. No, start off at a community school and then transfer to your local in-state school. Because unfortunately, we know that school teachers are not going to make a lot of money. So why do you want to go to the most expensive school? When you know you're going to get paid the same amount of money that this other person went and they probably pay $10,000 a year and you pay $50,000 a year. No, be wise, be smart. Education is for everyone, but four-year university traditional schools are not and will not be for everyone. I want to take that teacher example and use it for us to jump into the book Debt-Free Degree. You talk about this idea of dream schools. Why is that leading us in the wrong direction? You know, I don't have uh, the problem that I have with dream schools, Doc, is that everyone says, you know, dream school is an Ivy League school. Well, recently I was on the Tamron Hall show and I said, no, your dream school needs to be an affordable school. What's an affordable school? One you can graduate from debt free. You see, I think there's a statement out there. It doesn't matter about how you start. It matters about how you finish. And I think that's bogus as well. It's not really about how you start. It's not really about it's not it's not about where you start. It's not about where you finish. It's about how you finish. OK. And so, you know, you can go to community college and you can transfer to another four year university. But if you graduate with debt, that's how you finish. Or you can transfer to your community I mean, go to your community college straight out high school, then transfer to your local in-state school where the lab, the average local in-state school is going to be about ten thousand dollars a year. You know, you can cash flow that at about eight hundred and thirty three dollars a month and you'll be straight. You see what I'm saying? You can graduate debt free. That's how you want to finish. Your dream should be graduate with no debt. That should be our dream for our future and for our kids. And so for me, when I'm having a conversation of dream school, if your dream school is Harvard and you can get a scholarship there, go. If your dream school is uh, TSU and you can get a scholarship there, go. If your dream is whatever and you can graduate from there debt free, go. But if your dream is this Ivy League school and you're going to graduate with $150,000 of student loan debt, that's not your dream. Like, I'm going to ask you, is that your dream to graduate with that amount of debt? I know a lot of people, and I ended here, I know a lot of people who went to prestigious schools, Doc, but they're not prestigious individuals. But I know a lot of people who start off at a community college, uh, who transferred to a local in-state non-prestigious school, but they've graduated and they are prestigious people. What makes us successful is not where we work. It is not, you know, the schools we graduate from. It's us. Do we have character? 
Do we have values? Do we have integrity? And can we stay true to our purpose? That's a prestigious individual. So not everyone is lucky, and I use this term lucky loosely, to end up having the money already to pay for college or graduate school. You say in the book, if you want to either yourself graduate debt-free or your child, what have you, you got to start thinking about these things in middle school. Absolutely. That sounds a little young to me. What what can you start thinking about that early that's going to get you through college debt-free? Doc, I don't know if you are if you're on social media, right? It was about five years ago. I was sitting in my sitting in my living room, and I was on Instagram. And this one particular day, day, I got so upset, right? So upset. I mean, so upset. I won't even say what I said in my living room because I got to respect your podcast. <laughs> but I saw this kid doing this very inappropriate dance that his mom was teaching him. Right. Check this out. He's maybe five. But he knows how to do this very inappropriate dance that his mother was teaching him at the age of five. And I was like, man, we can sit here and teach our young people how to dance. Every lyric of a hip hop song or a country song, we can teach them how to you know, do this, but we can't teach them financial literacy. We, we can't teach them how to really start thinking ahead of their game. But we can teach them how to dance ahead of their age. And so I was like, wait a minute, this this is wrong. So one of my homegirls, she has an elementary school and she asked me to come read a book to her kids. And I said, cool, no problem. I went in there and it's a private elementary school. Elementary, doc. Elementary. Let me say this again. Elementary school. I walked in and when you walk into the school, you see pictures of her fifth graders who went on a college tour. And I'm like, wait, you do this with fifth graders? She says, yes, everything is about image. And when they're young, they are impressionable. And so what we put in front of them, that's what they aspire to be. If we only put dancing and hip hop music and junk in front of them, that's what their minds are going to grow up with. And so for me, I want to put college. They may not understand what the word college mean, but they'll remember the big buildings. They'll remember all the people and they'll start asking questions. Mom, dad, I remember this. What about that? And so for me, yes, as early as you possibly can, you start having a conversation about college about education, about their future. And in the book, I start teaching you as early as in the seventh grade on what you need to be doing, what classes you should be taking, what should they be doing during their summer? How can they get their volunteer hours? How can you start prepping them for the SAT and the ACT as early as in the seventh grade? Start stretching their minds a little bit. So this way, by the time they get in high school, oh man, they're fully focused. They know right now, every decision that I make from ninth grade on throughout my high school year is going to impact my college experience. But we can't talk to them in their junior year. Are you thinking about college? No, it's too late. Let's just be real. Some of the most successful people when it comes to college, not no debt, getting scholarships, they started in the fifth grade when you really do the research. And so my book, Debt-Free Degree, is really helping parents have that conversation early on, get the kids' mindset ready, and also get the parents' mindset ready for this college experience that's going to be happening, hopefully within the next four to to five to six years, depending on uh, what bracket they're in when they pick up the book. Your story about the kid inappropriately dancing drives home this idea eventually of normalizing this idea of college in young people. So it becomes part of what they kind of know from that early age. 
But I can't help but also think that it touches on another point you make in the book about social media presence, mm. which I have not seen in a lot of college debt books. Mm-hmm. You talk about being aware and being wary of your social media presence, even at such a young age. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, man. You know, one of my students uh, before joining the team here at Ramsey Solutions, I was actually a youth pastor there in Jacksonville, Florida. And I taught this philosophy of, of not having any debt going into college. And one of my students secured an amazing scholarship to a particular school there in Florida. And when she got there, smart kid, a smart kid, man, you know, she got there and she was at a party and doing what the average person does. Okay. I'm not saying she did anything wrong. What I'm saying is she was partying and she was doing what the average person does. And she unfortunately was intoxicated. Well, her scholarship was a Christian based scholarship. So a Christian-based scholarship, there are some guidelines you have to stick to to maintain a scholarship. Well, the party wasn't the problem. It was the alcohol that was a problem within this one particular scholarship. And so one of her friends took a video of it. And because she was intoxicated, she uploaded the video to her Instagram. And the very next week, she lost her scholarship. And I think one thing we have to start teaching people, especially not just young people, all people, our social media accounts, that's our digital resume. You know, it, it, wherever you go, people are going to go back and look at how do you carry yourself? How do you present yourself online? Because you are a representation of that school, you're a representation of your job, you're a representation of your family, you're a representation of anyone and everyone that you're connected to. And so I, I really want to spend some time on social media to let people know, like one, especially young people, your, your future employer will be looking at your accounts. Your, your scholarship, especially if it's a small business company or a church or a spiritual-based situation, they're going to be monitoring your accounts. Just make sure that your social media doesn't prevent you from walking into your future in a better way. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And like you said, it's not just in college. It's when yeah. you're going out to get a job, et cetera. You talk about scholarships How do we know when it's the right time to start looking into scholarships? I know that that's a hot topic nowadays, and that's one of the places that people are really getting money so that they can graduate debt-free. When do we start? Uh, You start as early as you possibly can. Now, the majority of scholarships are going to be for that high school and current college kid. There are about maybe 15 to 20% of scholarships that are available for that middle school age bracket. But I, I tell everyone in middle school, spend about 20, 30 minutes a day looking up scholarships, you know, every other day, if you possibly can. But as soon as you get into high school, as soon as you get into that, that eighth grade summer transitioning to ninth grade year, you need to be spending one hour every single day looking up grants and scholarships. And I tell everyone to go get this book called The Ultimate Scholarship Book. You can go to the ultimate scholarshipbook.com. It has about 40 to 60,000 scholarships, and they update that book every single year. And then another one is called myscholarly.com. They will send you actually a updated email list of every scholarship that you qualify for. And I say every Monday, you should be spending hours filling out these college uh, scholarship um, opportunities, and you aim for everything that is $2,000 or less. Uh, because when I did my research and writing a book, Debt-Free Degree, we have one point something billion dollars of scholarships and grants going to waste. Out of those one point something billions, nearly 50% of them are all the scholarships that are less than $2,000. Because a lot of people, they just like, hey, a $500 scholarship, that's not going to get me anything. Well, yes, it will. $500 can pay for your books for that semester. Okay. Five, $500 can almost pay for your semester, depending on the school you go to. 
for an example, if you go out to UNC Pembroke, UNC Pembroke, if you're accepted into the school up beneath their program there, you're spending $500 a semester. That's $1,000 a year. That's $4,000 for a bachelor's degree at UNC Pembroke if you are accepted up beneath this program. So you do the math there. Five, one $500 scholarship, that just paid for your semester. Two of those just paid for you know your school year. So when you really look at it, Go after every single $500, $200, uh, $1,000, $1,500 scholarship because a lot of these young people feel as if, oh, $1,000, that's not a lot of money. money. That's not going to put a ding in my account. Correct. If you're spending $100,000 $100, a year to go to school, you're absolutely right, uh, which is why I teach, hey, this is what we're going to be doing. These are the schools we're going after, et cetera. An important point, too, about extracurriculars. Um, one thing I learned from your book to think about, which I hadn't thought about before, is we think about extracurriculars as beefing up our chance to get into a really good college. But that's also a good place to look for scholarships, right? Because your extracurriculars connect you to communities yes. that are often looking to fund scholarships. Absolutely. You know, I was part of the NFL, not the, not the National Football League. I was part of the National Forensics League. I was a debater and that was a community within itself. And uh, because I was one of the best debaters um, in the country in the year of 2001, 2002, I was able to secure some partial scholarships. And so because I was doing extracurricular activities, it put me in front of a different group of community people who loved debating. Like for an example, if you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a part of the NFL because that's a national forensics lead. That, that's your job is to debate your argument. And it was fun, but that fun also landed me some funds uh, to go towards college. And so absolutely find extracurricular activities that have scholarship, either scholarship or leadership opportunities attached to them. If you can find scholarship opportunities, great. Do that extracurricular activity. If you can find leadership opportunities, great. Do that and go from there. The other thing that often people don't realize is that doing well on your standardized tests as well as getting good grades not only will get you academically into a good school, but actually could possibly cut down on the cost of that school. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you're when you're an academic smart kid, I, I wasn't. I think my publicist, Sharon, she probably was a straight A kid, you know, in school. <laughs> but uh, me, boy, I was just I was just trying to make it. But in all seriousness, my sister was a straight A high, high, high in college. And uh, she got tuition discounts. Sometimes her books got covered. They found ways to reward successful school attendance as well. They found ways to reward people who was striving and leading their class academically. So here's the thing. Doc, every decision you make while you're in school is going to impact you. Every, every, every. To settle for a B, okay, you're doing all right. But if you strive for A's, those consequences are going to be good. If you strive to make sure you don't miss a class, those consequences are going to be good. If you strive to build a relationship with your professors, that's going to pay off well. If you strive to go into the uh, financial, I'll talk about this in one of my books. For an example, I tell them like, hey, when you get there, find one particular lady or uh, male um, that's in the finance office 
and you build a good relationship with them. Figure out the birthdays, figure out the anniversaries, figure out how many kids they have. Bring them cookies every other month, you know? Let them know you're thinking about it. Let them know you're praying for them. Build a relationship with them because they're the first people that's going to know if they have some extra grant or scholarship money. And if you're treating them with respect and, you know, honoring them and just thanking them for their help, they will make sure to look out for you. And so whenever you're on to the college campus, just be strategic about every decision you make. If you're going to join a fraternity or a sorority or a particular club, just make sure that that, that whatever decision you make, it impacts your future in a good way. It doesn't impact your future in a bad way. It's a good point because I imagine there are a lot of freshmen and sophomores in college right now who are listening to this going, oh man, Anthony O'Neill, where were you? five years ago. Is the horse out of the barn by then when you're already in college? Is it too late? No, it's not, man. I would definitely say still get the book because if you're in your freshman or sophomore year, the key thing here is I don't want you to stop. I don't want you to drop out of school and I want you to finish school. And if finishing school means that you still need to take out some student loans, okay, cool. I'm good with that. Let's figure out how can we lower the amount of debt that you're borrowing and don't focus on paying back the debt. Once you graduate college, I want you to get this book called How to Destroy Your Student Loan Debt. I wrote that last year as well. It's about 80 pages. And I'm show you how to pay off these student loans because I get it. Some people are not aware of this education because I wasn't aware of it. And a lot of people still in the world today are still not aware of it. That's fine. My goal is to get our generation coming up to go into school debt-free. And then if you're already in school or graduated with student loan debt, let me show you how to finish school without racking up a lot of debt. And then once you graduate, I'm going to show you how to pay off your student loan debt so you can start building uh, wealth. Are there any situations in which going in, you can recognize that maybe you will need some student loan debt and that's okay? Uh, Never. None for me. You know, I'm not Dave. I'm not going to say that is stupid. That is dumb. What I'm going to say is I, I don't believe that you have to do something. I believe we choose to do something. And so if you choose to take out student loans, hey, I respect it. I I totally disagree with it. I think that there are ways we can go about it without taking out student loans. But I think I ask myself, are people willing to be uncomfortable? Because I think sometimes our comfort zone becomes our kill zone. I don't think no one walks into the situation saying, I'm going to take out student loans. I talk about this in my book too as well. One of the key things we've learned is people take out student loans thinking they're going to pay it off within three years once they graduate college. But the average person is taking them 12 years. The average minority is taking them 23 years. And so no one is, not say no one, but the majority of people are not paying off their student loans when they think or when they thought that they would have been. So for me, I would rather you be uncomfortable on the front end and maybe go this route, start off over here and then transfer over there. I'll never tell someone take out student loans. I'll never tell anyone to take out debt. The only time I'm saying, hey, go take out a loan is to go buy you a home. Other than that, let's figure out some different ways uh, to get what you need. So that way you can have joy, you can have peace. And I'll be real, it's not gonna be easy. It's not going to be comfortable, but it will be worth it. Yeah, let's think about that. 23 years to pay off your student loan debt. Most people are around that age when they come out of college. So you're talking about yeah. a whole nother lifetime yeah. to pay off your debt. Absolutely. I was uh, interviewing someone on my show, The Table, with Anthony O'Neill. When him and his wife sat down, they totaled up how much interest they would pay if they just went did a minimum payments. It would have took them 42 years to pay their student loans, and it would have been $175,000 in interest alone. Just think about what you could do with that money if you invested it well. And so I think a lot of people don't look at the 
the end game. They don't look at, the, at what they did towards the end. They look at what's comfortable today. Oh, I can afford $30 a month. Absolutely you can. But can you afford to lose $175,000 over the next 20 to 25 years? I don't know about you all, but I can't do that. Well, Anthony O'Neill, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I graduated college and medical school debt-free. Wow. That probably happened because of an unfortunate reason, because I had life insurance money. But the rest of you can do it not off of unfortunate tragedy, but for a reason of strength. You can buy debt-free degree and learn how to get there on your own. Thank you for coming on the show. If anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach you or learn more about your books or your content? Go to anthonyoneal.com and you see all my book content there, my podcast content there, my show content there, and all my social medias. But the best place to go, anthonyoneal.com. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Anthony O'Neill. That's a wrap. In the first half of the show, we talked to Anthony O'Neill about the debt-free degree. After the break, we'll catch up with Nasima McElroy and talk about how to slay your debt. But first... This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Do you ever wish you invested early in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Professional VC research identifies promising companies and funds across a range of sectors, stages, and global locations. Our crowd is investing in medical technology, breakthroughs in ag tech and food production, solutions in the multi-billion dollar robotic industry, and so much more. You can learn more and get in early at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join our crowd. The Our Crowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash EAI. A-I. Hey, everybody, this is a special treat today. The first half of the show is Anthony O'Neill talking about the debt-free degree. Now, a second bonus segment. This is a full interview with Nasima McElroy about her book, Smart Money. She is a part of our community, and I'm really excited to discuss not only the book, but her debt journey on Earn and Invest today. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the second segment. This is Nasima McElroy. I often mistakenly tell people 
that we didn't have any debt. And the reason why is my wife and I graduated from college and we had good jobs and we had high salaries and we lived together in this little apartment and we didn't really spend that much. But looking back, that isn't true. My wife actually had about fifteen or $20,000 worth of college debt, but we just didn't think about it that much. Because we had the cash, we paid it off quickly, and within two years, it was gone. So it was something I never stressed about. But I now realize that that's not really everyone else's experience. Many Americans find themselves in such a deep hole that they don't know how to claw their way out. So what do you do? What do you do when the debt becomes overwhelming? Asima McElroy is a nurse who paid off a million dollars in debt and has made it her mission to make you debt-free too. Her book, Smart Money, The Step-by-Step Personal Finance Plan to Crush Debt, was published in March of this year. Nasima, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm excited to have you back. Tell me the truth. Really a million dollars in debt? Yeah, yes, 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 because that did include my house. And I am a San Francisco Bay Area native. I'm an Oakland girl, true and true. And so, yeah, a million dollars is what I paid off. Tell us a little bit about how you got there. Where did it all start? The funny thing is, is that I was just going through the motions of life and doing the things I was supposed to do and checking off the boxes. Like I said, I'm from Oakland and kind of my ticket out of the hood or <laughs> to make it was to go to school. And everybody told me just go to school by any means necessary. And, you know, like that wasn't something that was talked about. I didn't think about it. I was told to get into to go to the best school that I got into. I went to USC for undergrad and for grad school. Then when I decided to become a nurse, I went to UCSF. And so I was kind of a school snob, but I didn't look at the price tag until I finally finished up my second master's degree in um, nursing. And I was just like, hmm, like I make a lot of money as a nurse, but I don't see any of it. What's going on? And the thing is, is that, you know, this whole time, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of debt because I didn't take on a lot of consumer debt. I didn't have credit cards, you know, and and I, I just had the other things. I just had the house and the car. So I was like, I'm not in a lot of debt until I realized that I had $200,000 in student loan debt kind of looming in the background. I wonder how come I like can't get ahead? Is it Maybe because I'm paying $1,900 a month just on my student loan payments, you know, (laughs) but it never really registered because to me and for everybody else looking in on my life, they thought I had it figured out, but it didn't get to the point where I was like, maybe I need to do something different until someone else was dependent on me until I saw, I looked down at my daughter and I realized that something were to happen to me, she would be in a bad position. And so that's when everything changed. (laughs) I was about to say, was having a kid the breaking point when you went from saying, oh, this is just what people do to, oh, my God, I have an issue here. If everything were to fall apart, if I got really sick, even I mean, not even like death, like if something were to happen where I couldn't work, like I was working, this would all crumble. So, and, and it was, for me, it was okay. If it was just by, I I mean, I've rebuilt myself a couple of times. So if it's just me by myself, I'm fine. But now this person is dependent on me. So it was totally about having this kid. 
as you talk about how you built up the debt, it's interesting to hear what you say, because it was like, it's what you do. You said, I became a school snob, right? You, you spend money on education. It seems like that's what we should be putting our money towards. But in the US, do you think we normalize debt? Do we just kind of call this what we do? It is. It's totally normalized. There there was nothing that I did where somebody was like, pump your brakes a little bit. Like maybe you're spending a little bit too much money on education. Maybe you should figure out a way where you can go to school cheaper. If you really want to be a nurse, you know, like an associate's degree nurse makes the same as a master's level nurse. Maybe you should just not go to UCSF and go to this second, like this community college if you want to do it, even though you already have a master's degree, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're going to come out with the same degree. Nobody talked about it like that. I had never heard about anything like that, actually, until I got introduced to the FIRE movement. Financial independence, retire early. It's funny how with schooling, we always think that prestigious is better, but there's certain jobs that that's not true at all. And I know lots of nurses and no one really cares where they went to school. A lot of times you care, A, is there someone there? And B, are they good? And I've found that there isn't like a connection between the nurses who went to a top-ranked university and how well they do clinically. So it's one of those situations where going to prestigious school may hurt your bank account, but doesn't necessarily change your career perspectives. I did want to say, though, as a caveat, as a Black woman in America, like to be kind of taken seriously, I always felt like if I did not have that degree from somewhere that was reputable, I wouldn't be taken seriously. So there's another little bit of that to it. But when it comes to nursing, it definitely doesn't matter. When I was in healthcare administration, it really mattered. Yeah. Yeah. I could seriously see that. So for, for yeah. someone who's looking at what school to go to, you really have to look at what you want to do with your life. And I know it's always hard to tell when you're like at that end of high school age, or even when you're looking at a graduate program, you're not sure what your career trajectory will be, but there are some jobs where it matters and some where it doesn't. Let's circle back to this idea of debt in America. How big of a problem do you think this is? I think it's a serious problem. And I think that's what holds a lot of people back from getting ahead that number one, they don't understand it because it's so normalized. And then they don't understand that the freedom from it. I think that there's this culture where we just don't have control of our money, period. And a lot of it is reflected in the debt that we have. So the book is Smart Money, the Step-by-Step Personal Finance Plan to Crush Debt. Many people are finding themselves at that turning point, that turning point you were at when you had a child and you're like, oh, I need to start thinking about this. What are some of the first steps you can take? You've had the realization that I have way more debt than I thought I would. Now I've got to change my life. What's like the first thing you do? The first thing I did was really sit down and think about what was What was I bringing in and what was I spending on? And I thought I was doing that because I was one of the first users of Mint and I used to track my transactions. Uh, But that that's in, in hindsight, right? That's hindsight budgeting. I really just had to look at like, okay, if I was to make this amount of money every month, how much could I, could I 
put towards my debt and prioritize that as opposed to saying what's left over at the end of the month that I can put towards my debt. It was that shift. It was like realizing what I had to work with and then shifting that relationship and saying, okay, now I can take that and do this, even if this X, Y, and Z is going to get adjusted, but I had it laid out in front of me. So I knew where, what things need to be shifted around. And that's the difference. I was able to proactively manage around that. And that's what a lot of people don't do. A lot of people like do a lot of mental math. I kind of know what's going in. I kind of know what bills I have. And then if I have anything at the end of the month, I can save, invest and do all these kind of things. But that's really backwards because it's going to leave you in a position where you have very little or nothing at the end of the month. And so just that shift. Just that one shift where I proactively set goals towards my paying down debt made the biggest difference in the world. And part of that was actually listing out all your debts and trying to figure out kind of how and and when to attack each one. Exactly. So listing out all my debts, but then really just managing like what I was bringing home, looking at that down to the dollar and allocating each and every one of those dollars towards what my goals were, making my money do what I was telling it to do instead of just reacting to the money that was in my bank account. When we first started this conversation, we were talking about your million dollars of debt. You said, yeah, but you know, 200,000 of that was mortgage debt. Are there good and bad types of debt? I mean, is it all a bad story if you see someone like you who has a lot of debt? Is some of that okay? So that's kind of hard to say. So actually, it was $500,000 of that was mortgage debt. $200,000 of that was student loan debt. I think we get too caught up in this good and bad debt. And I think it, it causes us to justify instead of proactively work on our money management. And so I would say debt isn't necessarily bad in itself. I mean, I know a lot of people who leverage debt and do like uh, some amazing things. I think it's just the control over our money that we give up that's important. Like if you're going to have debt, why do you have debt? What's your plan around it? What role in your life is it playing? Like understanding that and being in control of that instead of just being like, oh, well, this is available. These options are available to me. So I'm going to use them and I'm not going to really think about it. And I think that's what most people do. Let me push you on that a touch further. I mean, clearly something like credit card debt doesn't compare to the same as, let's say, the kind of debt you leverage to buy a rental real estate property. I'm going to caveat this by saying this whole time, like uh, not, uh, the whole time I didn't have credit card debt, which would have changed my story a little bit. But the reason why I didn't have credit card debt was because I couldn't get a credit card because years before I had went through the housing crisis and leveraged all this money, you know, thinking that building real estate and real estate empire was a way that I was going to be rich when I was in my early twenties, which caused me to have a bankruptcy. Well, two foreclosures, two short sales, and then ultimately a bankruptcy. And then I couldn't even qualify for a credit card. (laughs) So I just want to say like in my story, I wanted to make it clear. And I know this is not what you really asked me, but I just want to make it clear. I didn't have credit card debt, but it was because I couldn't get credit card debt sounds like when you wrote this book, you really are speaking from a place of experience after going yes. through those foreclosures and, and real estate issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, sounds like it was a kind of tough time. <laughs> it was tough, but at least it happened when I was in my early 20s. And like I said, I could bounce back from anything on my own. I didn't want to have to do that bounce back with a kid. 
So let's talk a little bit about the philosophies of paying off debt. You know, I hear people talk about the snowball versus the avalanche. Tell me what you think of those kind of for your readers. What What's the best way to attack debt? I always like to start by saying personal finance is personal and you kind of have to know how you react to money because money is really emotional. And I think a lot of times we try to logistically get our way out of debt, but that's not the way that we got into debt. For me, the debt snowball worked. Again, it worked because I didn't have like really high interest rate um, debt. I, I think my highest interest rate was 7% on my student loans. So it really, the debt snowball really worked for me, but it worked for me because it was really emotional for me. Like, Every time I would pay, some, so the debt snowball, let me just break it down. The debt snowball is when you list out all your debts from smallest, I mean, from smallest balance to largest balance, and you attack the smallest balance with everything you have and then pay minimum payments on everything else. And so that's though getting those smallest balance, those smaller balances down gives you the motivation to continue and also frees up those minimum payments so that you have more theoretically to throw at the next debt, right? And so that really worked for me because I was seeing debts like disappear. And then I felt like I had more and more money every month to throw out the debt. And it was like that momentum that really, really, really got me on this path. It was a game to me. Every dollar I would find, I would put on this, on my lowest debt. And I remember one month I even had paid so many payments on my student loan that I was like trying to make an automatic payment on a computer and it wouldn't go through. So I called and they were like, man, you have made too many payments this month. Like you've maxed out your (laughs) It was, it was really those psychological wins that really worked for me. So I think that maybe if I had, more credit card debt or high interest debt, I would have done more of a hybrid approach. But the debt snowball really worked really, really well for me. It sounds like almost the debt snowball, as you're talking about, starts with the lowest amount of debt and you pay those off first, whereas the avalanche starts with the highest interest rate. Right. Different kind of people maybe prefer different, different ways of paying off the debt, but both of them work fairly well. They work very well. Pick a plan and stick to it. It's not that hard. I think a lot of people go back between like trying to figure out what to do. And chances are like if you just do pick something, it's, it's you don't have to really do that much, you know, analysis. So when looking at people in general, especially in the United States, do you think that debt is more of an earning problem or a savings problem? And I guess the question is, which is the best way to attack it by trying to make more or trying to save more? I'm always the abundance kind of person, like really feel like there's limitless amount of ways to make money and you can make endless amount of money. But the thing is, is that I think people wait until they make more money to start trying to save or invest or pay down debt where it's like really where you're at right now. But you have to have a plan. It doesn't matter how much money you make. People were like, well, you made a lot of money. That's why you did it. And I was like, making that much money wasn't new to me. I didn't have a plan, <laughs> you know? So it's about the plan. But I think it's a combination of both. You you have to understand that savings aspect as well. But making more money is not going to hurt the situation if you have a plan with, to, with what to do with that extra money. Are you a big fan of the side hustle? I mean, that's certainly one way people try to beef up those earnings and pay off debt. I mean, I, I am. And then at the same time, 
I'm kind of shied away from like the hustle hard, like sleep is for the dead kind of mentality, because I feel like if you get smart about how you make your money work, your money can work way harder than you can. And life is too short. Like it's about spending your best years on earth, really doing what you value. And so, yeah, while I'm a fan of a side hustle, I think it's great. I think a lot of people have side hustles and they don't use that money for what it's supposed to be for. And then they end up spending all this time away from family, away from friends, away from the things that really matter to them. But I say like really, really invest time and money in things that will make your money work harder for you, things that you can capitalize off later. I just feel like people spend too much time and energy on ways to create money instead of trying to learn how to make their money work for them. One thing that I was fun reading about in your book was the way that people can use banks and credit cards to their advantage. Give us some tips on how you can use the banking system to help you and use credit cards to help you as opposed to hurt you. I think that's a, that's a, a slippery slope. Well, credit cards can be a slippery slope that we go down and there's ways to leverage credit cards to make it so that, you know, you get free vacations, you get rewards or cash back for things that you would normally purchase. But my rule of thumb is if you can't afford to pay off the balance every month, or if these things don't fit in your budget automatically, you shouldn't be putting them on a credit card. I don't carry balances on credit cards. I don't believe that carrying a balance is going to improve your credit. It actually doesn't. You just have to show utilization, which is a whole nother topic. But yeah, I feel like that is something that you can use to help you. But it's a mindset thing. It's another thing that you have to get your mind right around first, because a lot of people will jump into this game and start accumulating debt, really high interest debt and get themselves into trouble. Like there is a reason why credit card companies are these banks have the biggest buildings in cities, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> they're not, not doing so bad, huh? One thing that I always wonder is, especially when it comes to things like mortgage debt, et cetera, you're in the process of paying off your debt, but you're also trying to build a future for yourself. Is there room to invest while you're paying off debt? Can you do them both together? Oh my God, I'm so glad you asked that. So like along my my debt payoff journey, I stopped investing. I was gung-ho like Dave Ramsey, don't, don't invest while you're paying down debt. And it was to my detriment because I'm a nurse in Northern California. California has high taxes. At the time I was paying off my debt, I got married and then got a divorce, which made me have to file my taxes a little bit differently, which made me lose out on a whole lot of exemptions and or deductions. Therefore, at the end of like my debt payoff journey, I owe the IRS $30,000. Wow. And that could have been mitigated if I had been investing and I dropped my taxable income, right? Like that was the one thing that I could have done. I couldn't avoid the divorce and all of that stuff. But that was the one thing that I could have done that could have taken me um, out of that on the IRS. And <laughs> I, I was so, I'm so pissed off because I'm like that money could have that would have been my money to grow instead of having to pay this high to our IRS bill. And so, like I said in the beginning, personal finance is personal. There's no just one dogmatic approach, but investing is super important. The compound interest is super important. Even if you're not investing at the level that you think you should, you should be investing something 
every month. Like there should never be a month where you're not investing something, investing in something. I don't care if it's in the stock market, if it's in real estate or if it's some in something else, you should be investing regularly, period. And I feel like when you're talking about the tax issues and tax optimization, you're probably referring to the retirement savings, correct? Like the 401k yes, exactly. or 403b. Exactly. You are decreasing your taxable. You could have been decreasing your taxable income as well as putting money away for retirement. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I missed out on maxing out because I had a 403b and a 457 during that time. So that was easily what's 19,000. That was uh, like, <laughs> I mean, 19, you know, that was easily almost the $40,000 that I could have put away just in one year. Instead, I paid the IRS 30,000. So, you know, we live and we learn and I I share these lessons so that people don't make the same mistakes that I do. Explain for people what a 457 is. A 457 is a deferred compensation plan. It's usually offered to like teachers or government employees, firefighters, people like that. I happen to work at a hospital, which is a community-based hospital, which falls under the same category as like a policeman or a firefighter. And so we get these beautiful benefits of a 457. And a 457, you're able to contribute pre-tax at the same amount as a 403B, which is the 19500 for my age group every year. So you double those tax savings. And it's a great tool for early retirement because you don't have to wait for retirement age to have access to those funds. You have access to those funds at time of separation from the company. So if I stopped working at this hospital, I would have access to those funds. Now I would pay taxes at that point in time, but there's no penalties for withdrawing that. One of the interesting things that comes up when you're talking about people, especially if you have a, a good amount of debt, is it seems like to really pay it off, you have to keep yourself from spending, right? But I know that people have these big ticket items that they really feel are worthwhile. How do you kind of balance paying off that debt with also allowing yourself some of these big ticket items, whether it's a wedding or a house or a car? Like, how do you budget those incorrectly? I mean, that's the whole thing. And that's the key word. It's all budgeting. And so you just have to know what to prioritize. And so one of the big things for me was when I was paying off this debt, it was super important that I still felt like my life, like I had a good quality of life and that my daughter had a good quality of life. And actually, so not 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 necessarily a big ticket item during the time, but it was super important to me that we took vacations and she was a baby. She loved to go to Disneyland. It's a it's a, a hour flight for me to go to Disneyland plus a hotel plus Disneyland ain't cheap, right? And but these are things that I put in my budget because this was important to me. So it's about just pl- making a plan around it. If, you, if you're saving for a house, if you're saving for a wedding, you put that light item in there with your with your debt payoff goal. Like, and, and, and you just make it, a, make a plan around it. And that's what just most people just don't do. Make a plan around it. It sounds like we're at risk for two different issues, right? One issue is that we don't take it seriously enough. The other issue is that we take it too seriously. Do we? Do you see a lot of people over frugalizing that they're going too far in their debt payoff journey and not enjoying themselves? I've seen it. So this is like one of the things that I like. One of the issues that I have a lot with 
mustachians or like, you know, people in the fire community a little bit really lean on frugality a lot, which I think is great. But I also think that there needs to be a balance. Like it doesn't have to be about deprivation. It's about really focusing on the things that bring you joy. Some of those things usually are monetary, but you you don't want to cut those out in this process because then, I mean, like you end up at the end of this process and you're bitter and it's just, (laughs) or you're just like, I mean, I did all these things, but I'm not any happier. I want to do this and I still want to be happy. I want my family to be happy. I don't want them to think that, you know, I'm just gone missing because I'm trying to hustle my way out of this. I want to see my kids. It's very important that I spend time with them. It's very important that I have quality time with my family. So I think as long as it's not coming to a detriment, if you're not giving something up, up as a sacrifice to these goals, it's all good. And you need to like build in the things into your budget that makes you happy or else like you can hit your goal. Yeah, you can get there. But like I said, you're going to be bitter (laughs) or, you know, you're not going to be fulfilled. You know, as I listen to you talk, I realize that as far as budgeting books go and budgeting experts go or debt experts, you really have a much more nuanced vision of what this is. Mostly when you read a book about getting out of debt, it's very kind of go, 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 save as much as you can, side hustle, put it away. I'm getting a much different feeling from you. It sounds like we need to put life a little more front and center when we're talking about our debt and that we have to be careful that we don't lose ourselves. Yeah, to me, it's about freedom. And it's not about this whole, like this ultimate angle. It's about the freedoms that you build into your life along the way. And for me, paying off every single little debt accelerated like that freedom for me or opened up a whole new level of freedom for me. And that's what I want for for everybody to understand is that we have this concept that when we get to this level, then, you know, and it's not about that. It's about like the things that you're able to attain along the journey. That's what I want people to get to. It's a really a very hopeful answer because I definitely get from you this idea that maybe there's joy along the way, right? So you can celebrate each credit card that's paid off. You can celebrate yes. every small debt. And if we can find some joy in that, maybe it won't seem like such an arduous process. Yeah. And and the thing that really helped me was even in my failures, even in my setbacks, like my initial goal was to pay off all my debt by my 36th birthday, but I didn't get there because a week before my birthday is when, you know, my my divorce kind of settled. And then they were like, you need to pay your ex-husband this amount of money. And then it was, you know, a month after I found out that I owed the IRS $30,000 in debt. But in that time, like, I was sharing my my journey with people and I know that what I was sharing could help the next person. So even if it was a setback for me, I feel like I'm still winning because I'm helping the next person. So that brought me a lot of joy too. It's also a hopeful message, this idea about dealing with divorce and debt. Money issues are a major cause for couples to split up. You can survive it, it sounds like. And in fact, you kind of went through it. This is a common issue, I think, for people paying off debt that we don't talk about often is what happens when the stress causes a divorce and how do you deal with that added extra financial trauma? 
<laughs> and it's and it's major. And I think that it's something that's glossed over a lot. Even like when talking about getting married, like <laughs> in planning for big ticket items, maybe you should plan in like some counseling in there. Maybe you should plan in an attorney, a prenup, things like that, that are like practical and protective, but things that we need to talk about more just money-wise as a society, because yeah, I mean, nobody wants to talk about that because, you know, it's supposed to be about love and all this stuff. But I mean, like our divorce rate is pretty high. We need to talk about these things. So we've talked about some of your setbacks, the divorce, the big tax bill. What do you think was your biggest mistake? Like looking back at your trajectory, is there one thing you're like, if I just had done that better, my life would have been so much easier. I, I would probably say the debt. But the thing is, is that Honestly, I I did not know. So it's just like, well, if I would have learned about financial literacy earlier, like if I had this book <laughs> when I was going into school, like I would have I would have known these things. So I could easily say I probably could have figured out ways to minimize my student loan debt. But I did not even know that that was a thing, you know? <laughs> It wasn't like I made this decision and I was, I know wholeheartedly that this debt is going to set me back, but I'm making this decision to get into debt. I need this other degree and this is how I'm going to pay for it. And I guess it's the debt, but I'm just like, I I don't see how I could have shifted that in the mindset that I was at at that time. (laughs) Like, yeah, maybe I should have had different parents that like taught me about money (laughs) earlier in life, right? (laughs) I just interviewed uh, Anthony O'Neill, who wrote the debt-free degree. I asked him straightforward. I said, look, you know, should can should anyone have educational debt coming out of college? And his answer was a pretty strong no. Kind of his take on it was that we really need to find ways to minimize that debt. And it makes sense because that debt can hound you. And certainly it sounds like it hounded you for quite a while. It makes sense. It totally makes sense, but who's going to tell these 18 year olds? Like who, who is that person? Your college, my, my college, my um, high school advisor didn't tell me that my college advisor didn't tell me that when I went to financial aid, they didn't tell me that up front. I mean, we had exit counseling, but like, who's going to tell you that unless you have someone in your life that is going to tell you that, you know, maybe there are some alternatives. I mean, I totally get it. And I'm all, and that's what my mission is, right? Like my kids aren't going to have any college debt. As a matter of fact, they have enough money right now to pay for their college. And if they don't even go to college, it'll be my legacy building tool. But I mean, I had to build that from what I know. And so we just need to stop normalizing college debt. And I understand what he's saying. That's a strong no, but until like, there's a lot of people that are working on advocating against it. I mean, I don't see it changing. It's an interesting point because maybe what we realize as people in debt now that while we are struggling with our own debt, maybe one of the best things we can do is help our children not end up in the same place and make sure that we don't pass on this generational habit of, in this case, you know, poor financial planning when it comes to, to debt. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all I could do. You know, I can't, I can't go back and change that, but I, but I do tell people and educate my friends. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other ways you can go to school and fund school. So if people out there want to know more, 
about how to kind of slay their debt, of course, they can get your book, Smart Money, the Step-by-Step Personal Finance Plan to Crush Debt. But are there other resources out there, other websites or places that you've found to be particularly helpful? I think Dave Ramsey is a is a good resource for debt. I would say that with a caveat of he is like gung-ho, step-by-step, this is what you do. You have to kind of find a balance of what works for you. So I'm I'm hesitant to say like follow that plan because I've deviated quite a bit from it. But I think in in the setting up process as far as zero-based budgeting and the debt snowball part of it, just <laughs> put a kind of a little bit of investing in your budget. That's a good resource. But there's tons of just resources out there. But I what I what I don't like about giving people a whole bunch of resources is that I feel like it causes this analysis paralysis, just create a plan, stick to it, pay off your debt, invest a little bit along the way. Like it don't don't make it too hard. I feel like we overcomplicate everything. That reminds me as you're talking about your plan, is there a favorite budgeting plan for you specifically? How do you like to budget? You know, so I still actually to this day use Dave Ramsey's Every Dollar app, which is a zero based budgeting app. YNAB is You Need a Budget is a great app. It's a little bit more robust than that. But those are the two things that I would recommend if like paying off debt is like a major goal of yours. Nassim, it's been a pleasure talking to you about paying off debt. If people want to know more about you, want to purchase your book or talk with you on the Internet, how can they reach you? So Smart Money is available on Amazon right now. And of course, they can reach me at financiallyintentional.com on Instagram and Facebook at Financially Intentional. And if you're a nurse and you love talking about money, I have a podcast called the Nurses on Fire podcast, which introduces nurses to financial independence and just share stories of nurses that are out here doing big things with money. And anything coming up in your life, you just dropped the book. Any big plans or projects you're working on now? What's next? Just doing some speaking. I'll be at the econ, I'll be a speaker at the economy conference coming up soon. So you can join me there. Doc G was a speaker last year, and so I'm super intimidated to follow him. But <laughs> nonetheless, I feel like I'll be okay. <laughs> A lot of imposter syndrome going on here, but that's where I'll be. <laughs> there there shouldn't be any imposter syndrome. The Economy Conference, I believe, is going to be in November of this year. I am planning on going too because one of my partners in crime, Joe Salcihai, who helps create and produce, earn and invest, will actually be there as a speaker too. It is a great conference in Cincinnati. Diana Miriam, the creator of the conference, has put a huge amount of thought into it. And I will be there too. So I look forward to hanging out with you again because we hung out last year at it. Yes, that was my last outing. <laughs> and it will probably be like my first major, well, like like speaking event, you know, post pandemic. Well, not post, but you know, <laughs> but, and so I'm like really looking forward to meeting a lot of you guys out there. Everybody, I really encourage you to come It, Like you said, it is super thoughtful. The amount of knowledge that is dropped there is like overwhelming, but super actionable. And I encourage everybody to attend. Yeah, she hasn't introduced or dropped all the speakers, but I saw that Kevin, the Financial Panther, she just announced. I know Bitches Get Riches will be there. So it is very exciting. 
And uh, I definitely will be excited to be there with you. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Nasima McElroy. That's a wrap. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.